Well, this evening in our Bible study, we are looking at Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, and verses 11 to 17, particularly uh, the account of the raising of the widow's son. This is a miracle in which the narrative is only found in Luke's Gospel, and it is the first of three resurrection accounts described in the ministry of Christ in the Gospels. This is the first of the three. The second was the raising of Jairus' daughter, and then the third was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And this, as well as other miracles that Jesus did, pointed to the fact that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. And that explains, we didn't read the ongoing narrative But it does explain what follows on as the account of the resurrection goes back to John the Baptist through his disciples. And Jesus is able to say to John through his disciples, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them, And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And that indeed is the case this evening. Blessed is each one of us who are not offended or stumbled as we hear that Jesus Christ is God's anointed, that he is God's Messiah. I want to look at a number of things that arise in this miracle. And the first is this. Uh, we learn in this miracle again the wonderful providence of God. And by providence, I mean the way in which God arranges all the circumstances. As you read closely the first verse, verse 11, we see that there are two crowds mentioned. Uh, there is the Lord Jesus Christ with many of his disciples coming with him. And I think that word disciple at this time must be not just the 11, uh, but it must be the, uh, those who had, were for at least for a while following him and listening to his teaching. He has done wonderful miracles and people are following him and listening to him and learning from him. And he has come to this city called Nain. And as he enters it, there's another large crowd coming, we may say, in the opposite direction, uh, and it's a crowd of mourners on their way to the cemetery. The cemetery uh, would have been outside the city wall because of the ritual uncleanness of bodies which had to be buried outside the wall. And we see here this meeting, this so-called chance meeting between the two crowds, and especially between Jesus and the widow. And this reminds us of the providence of God, that there are so many circumstances in which we can look back and say, yes, it's God who arranged that so-called chance meeting. It's God who brought it about. It's God who brought about the fact that tonight you're sat there and I'm stood here And we're listening to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's God who brought about the fact that at some point in your experience, whether through your parents or through 
a teacher or some other person, you came to understand, to hear about Christian things. It's God who arranged all the circumstances of our birth, of our upbringing, and of bringing us to that point where we can hear about the Lord Jesus Christ, even tonight as we're hearing. And here they are at Nain, and this meeting, this meeting in the, in the wisdom of God between the widow and the Lord Jesus. I have to say that some 50 years ago, I actually got a glimpse of Nain as a student uh, in Israel, visiting it briefly. It, it looked to be a beautiful little place just on the side of Mount Tabor, uh, glistening white in the sun. And uh, it, it was at that place that Jesus met with this widow. So we learn firstly the providence of God. And secondly, we learn about the sorrow that sin has brought into this world. Now, every death, of course, is a tragedy. All deaths are sad. But there's a sort of double sadness about this particular death. It's the death of a widow's only son. Uh, it's, it's always sad, of course, for there to be a predecessment in a family where a child predeceases a parent. But she is, at this point, a widow. She hasn't a husband to look after her. And humanly speaking, it would have been her son who would have looked after her, both economically and in other ways, in this time when there were probably not many arrangements for people in need within that community, within that society. And here she is in a very miserable situation. But God didn't create these kinds of circumstances. God didn't create a world where people are miserable. God didn't create a world to be like this. He made everything very good. We read about that in the book of Genesis, in the early chapters. And God leaves us in absolutely no doubt as to what has brought in sin and sorrow and death and bereavement into this world. It is Adam's sin. Therefore, as, as Paul says in Romans 5, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. It's sin that's brought in death and sorrow and thorns and sickness and pandemics and funerals and tears. If man had not sinned, it wouldn't have been like this. But because of God's absolute holiness and his hatred of sin, we see here the effect of it. That's not to say, of course, that this particular man, this son, uh, who we know virtually nothing about, uh, that there was a particular sin that had to be laid to his charge. Just as we can say today that those who've died tragically of this virus, this pandemic, we, we cannot say that they're greater sinners more than anyone else. Perhaps those who survived 
sinned even more than those who perish. We just do not know. Perhaps vice versa, God alone knows. We have that passage in Luke's gospel that reminds us we cannot give a reason why particular people die in particular circumstances, in particular tragedies. God alone knows. But the lesson that Jesus enforces is this, that this reminds us of our sinnerhood. He says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And death and all the things that are associated with death reminds us that we have all sinned. Just as all of us are liable to death and to sickness, so every nation, every type and class of man has sinned. And how much we ought to hate sin. How much we ought to loathe it. Here is the result of sin in this woman weeping at this open coffin at the bier of her son with all the tragic consequences that she sees before her. How much we ought to hate the sin that causes the grief and the judgment and the anguish in our world. How we shouldn't excuse sin. How we shouldn't laugh at it or call it by another name or sweep it under the carpet, especially our own sin. We should not cover it up, but we should confess it to Almighty God. And we must lay the blame here where the blame belongs. The blame ultimately is not with a particular nation or a particular class of person or a particular system of politics. The blame for the sorrows and disasters for the pandemics and the funerals and all these things, the blame is squarely at the foot of every human being. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we learn about the providence of God, about the sorrow that sin brings into the world, and thirdly, we learn here about the deep compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is interesting to notice what it says in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Now clearly, what he's going to do with this young man in raising him from the dead was a mighty display of his power. It was a display of the deity and glory of our Lord Jesus that he should raise this dead man to life again. But we do not read that that, in the first instance, as it were, moves him. We do not read that the Lord, being conscious of his power over death, says to her, do not weep. We read, rather, that when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. It's not so much his divine power that motivates him, as the fact of his compassion. It's his compassion that moves him to exercise his power in this way. And such is our Saviour and such is our God. 
And we notice in this particular instance, there are many different miracles that Jesus did where people come to him, even the one preceding this. Someone comes to him and begs uh, him to intervene on behalf of a sick servant. But in this case, there is no initiative taken by the woman. There's no one else who intercedes for her. And it seems that the Lord Jesus doesn't wait to be asked. There's not a res- he is not responding to faith in her or to faith in anybody else. He is rather moving at his own initiative under the impulse of his own compassion as he sees this weeping woman utterly bereft. And he knows because he is the son of God and because it's quite obvious there in the situation, this woman beside the coffin, he knows that she is, the, uh, she is the only one left in the family, the widow. But as the incarnate God, he knows all about her circumstances. How we ought to see here again the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder if you think of God and of Christ in those terms. Or I wonder if you think of him as Martin Luther used to think of him before he was converted, as someone who had just one thing, as it were, in his agenda, one purpose, which was to utterly judge him and condemn him and smite him. And he had to learn through learning the gospel of justification by faith that there is another side to God as well as his holiness and there's another side to Christ. There is his deep compassion. I wonder if you think of Jesus Christ like that. And these astonishing words, he says to her just simply this, do not weep. And it's so simple, isn't it? He came and touched the open coffin And those who carried him stood still. Perhaps there was just a note of authority in the way he's touched that coffin. And so they stand. And he says to this man, young man, to this corpse, young man, I say to you, arise. And he who was dead sat up and began to speak. And he presented him to his mother. Notice that he presented him to his mother. The Lord Jesus has taken into account what death has done within this family. The Lord Jesus has seen this widow's sorrow. And he now turns it into joy as he presents the young man back to her. In each of the three resurrections that Christ performs in his incarnate ministry, there is a sense of Family. There's a sense of families being reunited. There's Jairus' daughter who is restored to her father. There's Lazarus who is restored to his two sisters, Martha and Mary. And there is this young man restored to his mother. As one of the commentators, uh, Geldenhuis, says about this, about this miracle. He says, we see Jesus here as a loving comforter, the victor over death, and the reuniter of separated dear ones. What he did here for the widowed mother and son, he will do one day for all the faithful in a perfect and final form. 
He will bring full comfort. He will raise his people in incorruptibility. And he will reunite us in the heavenly realm with our loved ones who have died in him. Make no mistake that those who have died in the Lord will be restored to us, restored to his people, restored to families, if, if the families are Christians. Make no mistake that what Jesus did here in this little family, in restoring joy and life into it, is a picture of what he will do finally at the last in the great resurrection when he raises the dead, incorruptible, when he becomes the comforter of his people, and when he wipes away all tears from the eyes of all his people. As someone has said, earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. And we see the compassion of Jesus. And he is the same Jesus today as ever he was. Yesterday, today, and forever, he is the same. He is as loving and as compassionate now as when he was on earth. He is as much a comforter now as when he was on earth. He is as much a comforter now as the Holy Spirit is to us, the paraclete, one who brings the same consolation to us. He is one who comes in the very likeness of Jesus. And it's this Jesus to whom the Gospels invite you to cast yourself at his feet and put your trust in him. We see his compassion working against what sin has brought into the world. And then we see here his almighty power. Now we might say to people, I trust we don't say it in any harsh way, but we might say to people who are full of grief, devastated by events, we might say, look, don't cry. Uh, And we say that in sympathy and kindness, perhaps. But Jesus says it here with a note of authority. Do not weep. There is assurance in what he says because a moment later he is going to raise this man from the dead. The almighty power of Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. And we see just that that power is yet to be exerted in all its fullness at the end of the world. We learn from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians that the day is coming when the Lord Jesus himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. We are directed here to the mighty power of Christ, who with a word can raise the dead. And how it must have shocked the people there in that funeral procession when Jesus touched the open coffin with the corpse. The coffin which bore ceremonial uncleanness for a Jew, but Jesus could not be contaminated by that. 
and he speaks to the corpse and life enters into this man, into his heart, into his brain, into his blood vessels, to his lungs, all those organs that we're told with the current pandemic can be attacked by this particular coronavirus and can pack up. The Lord Jesus, whatever it was that took this young man into death, the Lord Jesus speaks the word and all these organs are functioning just right. We have to compare this miracle with two similar miracles in the Bible. Done by prophets of God, we think of the ministry of Elijah in 1 Kings 17. We're told about Elijah raising the son of a widow woman. 1 Kings 17 verse 20. We're told how Elijah cried to the Lord for this boy. He said, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the woman, on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray let this child's soul come back to him. And a very similar miracle done by Elisha, recorded in 2 Kings chapter 4. Verse 33, when Elisha came into the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. He stretched himself out on the child and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up and stretched himself out on him. Then the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Now those were tremendous miracles, but do you notice how much labor and how much effort there was in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha for those two resurrections? The spiritual energy, the crying to the Lord, the putting, lying on the child, putting the mouth on mouth, the eyes on eyes, hands on hands, the walking about and so on. Whereas in the case of Jesus, he just touches the coffin and they stand still and he just says to the young man, I say to you, arise. Because this is, yes, he's a prophet, as it says later, but far more than a prophet, he's almighty God. He is the resurrection and the life. And what he does here in the physical, we're told he does in the spiritual as well. Yes, he will do this in the physical at the last, as we read earlier. The trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised, and people will be brought back, uh, brought back to life. There will be a general resurrection. And Jesus announces this in John's Gospel in chapter 5 and verse 28. He says, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Can you imagine it? The Lord Jesus in the skies with his holy angels coming in the clouds of heaven, and he just utters the voice. He utters his voice, and everybody raised from the dead. 
And those whose atoms have dissipated long, long centuries ago will come forth from the dead. Those who died at sea, those who died on air crashes or on land, those who died of disease, those who died of old age, whatever the cause of death. Every single person raised some to a resurrection of life and glory, some to a resurrection of dishonor and corruption. But that voice of Christ, that trumpet of God, and everybody brought back to life. But this is a great illustration of what the Lord Jesus can do now in this life, in the spiritual. Have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered that just as he will do that mighty miracle in the future, physical miracle, astonishing miracle, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ in our bodies, in our resurrection bodies. But there is this amazing miracle that he can do in the here and now spiritually. And the Apostle Paul tells us about that in the letter to the Ephesians. As he speaks to these people who once were engaged in black magic practices, in worshipping an idol called Diana, and filling the coffers of the people who sold all the trinkets and all the occult charms of Diana, the whole thing was a money-making exercise driven by occult practice, and people who were given to this and to fornication and all kinds of immorality in the worship of Diana, what happened to them? Well, the moment came when they heard the gospel of Christ and they believed that message, and in a moment they were changed. It was a resurrection. And in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. One minute they were listening to Paul, perhaps in the open air, And Paul was preaching Jesus Christ as the saviour of the world, as one who justifies the ungodly. And they believed that, and in a second, they were spiritually resurrected. They left behind the occult practice. They left behind the immorality. There was a new creature inside them, a new being. God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. And do you realize he can do that in your life? That if he's never yet done it, he can still do it in your life? Do you realize that without Christ as your Savior, you are a spiritual corpse? Under the wrath of God because of your unholiness? Because of your sin, but in a moment through faith in Jesus, you are raised up together with Him in the spiritual. You're made to sit together with Him in heavenly places. Do you know that it's the same almighty power of God working through Jesus Christ? And you know, there's no spiritual corpse He cannot raise. There's no one too bad that he cannot raise them to life again. There's no one in whom the corruption of sin and the dominion of sin has got such a grip of that Christ cannot bring him out of that and into a whole new world. Into a whole new creation. Perhaps you're praying for somebody. If you're a Christian, you're praying for somebody and they're not yet converted. 
family or friends. But God can yet raise them from the dead because he is this mighty saviour. He stands there and he says, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. Notice that. He didn't just sit up, but he began to speak. He was not just breathing and resuscitated. He was normal. He was once more physically fully alive. Don't you want that in your experience? The mighty power of God to come into your heart and to raise you up with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And to leave behind the guilt and the darkness and the furtiveness and to leave behind all those things of which you, you know you're ashamed and to have them covered by the blood of Jesus and to have all that smells of death, spiritual death, left behind and to have new life with Jesus Christ to enter into a whole new world, to breathe a new kind of fresh air and to be Well, as it says here, presented to his mother, yes, you become one of the family of God. If we can spiritualize the text in that way, you become one of his people, a brother, a sister of his people. Don't you want that? Trust in the power of God. Notice that the young man doesn't make some little movement, some little trick to get himself Resurrected, The work of resurrection is Christ's work. It's God who saves sinners. It's not them making a decision. It's God who saves them. It's God who brings new life into their heart. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven, says Jesus to Simon Peter. It's a vertical work. It's God at work in your hearts. Don't you long for that? Cry to God for that. Ask him to do it. Give him no rest until he has raised you from the spiritually dead person that we all are until we're saved. 